Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone. And I am really looking forward to my conversation today with Daniel Goodenough. He's the co-founder of The Way of the Heart. She started in 1988 to help people live more fulfilled and purposeful lives. Daniel has authored 14 life mission courses and trained thousands internationally. His background as a professional musician, scientist, fine artist and designer has contributed to his deep understanding of and profound commitment to empowering others to manifest their life mission and to do so artfully, skillfully and sacredly. He's uh, the author of recently published book, The Caravan of Remembering, a roadmap for experiencing the awakening of your life's mission. Daniel, welcome to Conversations. Thank you, glad to be here. Lovely to have you and an enjoyable book, The Caravan of Remembering. Obviously a roomy fan, a roadmap for experiencing the awakening of your life mission. Yes, I immediately, of course, went to the line of the caravan of despair, come. So uh, let's just talk a little bit about the evolution of the book first. What drew you to begin this journey of looking for the life's purpose? What's the background? What informed you? What were the relevant, the things that stimulated you to write the book, Daniel? Well, the conversation about life's mission was a life, has been a lifelong pursuit. I'm a little bit of an odd duck in that uh, I don't really have a memory of not knowing what my life mission is. Hmm. I, it kind of the way I think about it, talk about it, is that uh, whatever point that is that you're aware that you're aware, you know, as a child, mm-hmm. I knew that I knew why I was here and really couldn't understand why other people didn't or didn't seem to and was kind of intrigued and a little bit horrified by the adults in my life that I saw, you know, going to going to work, doing a job that they didn't seem to not only not enjoy or like, but actually kind of really didn't want to go to. So the the lifelong question, and that was what I knew I was here to do, is to help people remember why they're here. And not only remember it, to, to remember that skillfully and step into it in the world and make that manifest. And when they go to work in the morning, be excited and look forward to going to work. And that was the start of it. So that's been a lifelong pursuit uh, with many detours along the way because when I was growing up seems like eons ago uh, at this point in my life what I do for a living now wasn't in a job category anywhere so it wasn't like I could go get a degree and then I could talk to people about life missions so I remember at 14 going well let's see what can I do 
so that people would know who I am. And when I talk about life mission, they'll listen to me. And, you know, logic of a 14 year old, they said, well, sports, no, too small for that. I could do acting and become a star, except I'm too shy. Uh, music seemed to be something I was pretty good at and I thought I could do, so I pursued that. Picked up a fine arts degree along the way and did some other things. So it was kind of the lifelong research project is how do you talk to people and what are the skills that were required for people to both articulate their life mission and step into it. So then I did finally arrive at the place where that was for the last plus three plus decades, it is what I've been doing full time. So doing a lot of doing full time in-person classes with people, I wanted to reach a wider audience with that first level of life mission, which is why are you here? What does that call you to do? And who does that call you to be? The what that calls you to do being the outer life mission and the who that calls you to be the inner life mission. And then when you do the what, it changes who you are, which changes what you do, which changes who you are like that. So it's a, it's a spiral, if you will, hopefully an upward spiral of uh, accomplishment and skill building. And that led me to write The Caravan of Remembering in which I embedded in a fictional story, the process for becoming skillful at that, which I mentioned the word skillful multiple times, which is kind of maybe a little bit different approach that I have to some of the other people that are talking about that in that my proposition is that anyone, absolutely anyone, can get to the point where they can articulate anywhere with anyone under any circumstance why they're here and what that calls them to do now and who that's calling them to be and knowing that why the why doesn't change, the what you're called to do about that or the vehicle will change. And that's not some magical lightning strikes kind of thing that that like anything else in life is a skill building process that if you give people the skill to be in the inquiry of the why, what, and who, anyone can arrive at it if you're willing to do the practice in the sense that if you want to become an elite musician, there are practices to do on your instrument. If you want to become an elite athlete, there are practices to do in your sport. If you want to become an, uh, let's say, masterful, you achieve a certain level of mastery in the embodiment of your reason for being here and having a skill with reinventing the what that calls you to do and the who that's calling you to be, that they will like a musician or an athlete or any other domain in life, there are skills to employ. And if you do that, you will become masterful at the instrument called you and uh, moving through your life, stepping into your life mission, clear about the why, what, and who, which then gives you a sense of the how and the when, and then moving on to the next level of skill of doing, you know, integrating the good, true, and beautiful so that you're doing it artfully, beautifully, sacredly, and skillfully. Mm -hmm. So the caravan remember, or caravan remembering was just the, that first level, putting it in the book with the scales to practice and an example of somebody doing that. And that was why it was a fictional format that you get the sense of this character who goes to the caravan is in the inquiry and integrating that in the caravan and remembering is an inner world and what I call the horizontal world, the practicality of life. So that's where that came from. I see. I, I did wonder why you put it into a, a literary piece rather than a self 
help book? Because it was, was that to have a greater audience or just an expression of your creativity because that's one of your what's? Well, I, I started to write personal growth, self-development book, nonfiction, and it didn't, it just wasn't working for me. I'm not really sure how to explain that, except that you write this and you go, mm, that's not moving me. Mm-hmm. So I got the inspiration to the Caravan of Remembering, and it was, it was, that was more the flow then, because it, it did speak to me, and it was an inspiration, and the book flowed, and I incorporated some of the insights I got as I wrote out actually an 800-page personal growth book, which <laughs> would have been worth condensing and editing, except it wasn't worth condensing and editing. So that's yeah. how I arrived at the fiction format. I've done a few of those myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a learning experience. Talk about the difference between um, mission and purpose. What, how do you distinguish those, Daniel? I have a very particular way that I see that, not to say that it's the correct way of looking at it, but I find it helpful to make the distinction between vision, mission, and purpose as for so many people that gets collapsed into the same thing. Yeah. So I like to say that the vision is what you see as possible for the world. A, a vision, a possibility that perhaps a lot of other people are also working on. Mm-hmm. As in, I'm not the only person talking about mission and purpose. And so I have this vision of possibility that the world takes it as a given that we all have a purpose and that it's important that we collectively help people get to that because anytime anyone anywhere doesn't step into their reason for being here, we all lose whatever that gift was in some way. So that's vision. Then I would say, so you have this vision of possibility that other people are working on. The mission would be your singular, unique way that you bring what you have to bring to that, that your voice is your, in the artistic sense, the voice being your uniqueness. And that is singular, like a fingerprint or a snowflake. And that you, so other people are talking about life mission and vision and purpose. And I would say my mission then would be the unique way I address that. Mm-hmm. So that why that turns that turns into the caravan of remembering, for instance, and the the manner in which I talk about the multiple levels of mission. And then purpose. My way of looking at purpose is there's a kind of temporary nature to purpose. And even if you say life purpose, how, how I arrive at that is to say that sometimes, uh, playing off of Ellen Watts' statement that we don't dance to get to the other side of the room, mm. sometimes our purpose is to get to the other side of the room. That's our purpose. Sometimes our purpose is to finish our work so we can have a free weekend. Sometimes our purpose is to help our children accomplish a certain thing. Sometimes our purpose is to finish a project. So there is, and, and in terms of life mission, life purpose, over the many decades, I've actually witnessed that there are fashion trends in purpose. That in this decade, in, a, in the 90s, there was a trend to say my purpose is fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And in the aughts, people would say my purpose is. And as we enter now the teens or the 20s, um, I, I'm already seeing there's a trend in purpose that when people say my purpose, there's like a, it's like a fashion trend, right? So 
not to make that a, a bad thing, but just to say that if you have a sense of your vision and your unique piece of that, which would be your mission, then the purpose, then the life purpose then would be how you are bringing that mission to this timing. So that could be, here's my purpose, downline from my mission for the next three months, given what's happening in the world, or the next six months or the next three years, maybe it's a decade. I do notice though that, and this would make sense, that your interior is changing, the interior of your home is changing, your family and your relations and your community is changing, the world is changing politically, economically, and so socially. So then of course the vehicle for the expression of your why, which doesn't change, would change. Mm. So that's how I, I, I bring life purpose to this vision mission distinction is to say that the vision is higher possibility that's collective mission is your unique piece and then your purpose then inherent in the word is a kind of temporary nature even if you say life purpose the expression that's calling you to now and then now and then now right. will be changing and and acknowledging that and making it a strength to say that okay my purpose now like instead of getting to the other side of the room, it might be getting to this, this calling that I have for the next three months or the next three years or something like that. Wow, beautiful. Thank you. So that makes me think of, well, we have gifts and we have strengths and we have talents. We have innate gifts and strengths and talents. Then we have ones that we need to learn to fulfill perhaps our mission. How do we guide those um, and get away from, is it, you know, so many people are trapped, as you have said, uh, in jobs they hate or in doing something because they feel they have to to make money to pay the mortgage or to, to um, support their family that, oh yeah, there's this purpose I have or this, this mission I have to do this. And as soon as I, whatever, then I'll do that. Uh, meanwhile, they're working as an accountant and they're really a saxophone player or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like if you said to Michael Jackson that he's working in the Pizza Hut and forgot who he was and you say, you should, you should be singing, you know? He says, yeah, I love to sing, but you know, I'm gonna get a raise here soon and I've got benefits. And so we sell out to these non-essential things. We sell our essence out to these non-essential things. How do, you, how do you get people to begin to see what they are to embrace those gifts and strengths and talents them and direct them towards our, their mission? That comes back to the skill development piece again. And the conversation about your life mission, vision and, and the vision of possibility and the unique thing you're gonna to bring to that is not a one-time thing. It's not that it's meant to be as, as if you, speaking of musicians, if you wanted to be a musician slash singer slash songwriter, be in, and that was your domain of work, you wouldn't be saying to yourself, okay, now I got it, I'm done. Or right. I've, I've done my, even I've done my 10,000 hours, you know, the 10,000 hour thing of practice and okay, I'm skillful and now I'm done. The example I like to bring up is Pablo Casals in his 90s. 
would get up every morning and do three hours of scales. For many, many, many decades, the preeminent cellist in the world, one of them anyway, and still got up every morning and did three hours of scales. So now bringing it back to the question of why are you here and what does that call you to do and who does that call you to be to step into it and who will you become by stepping into it? Mm. Before you get to the how part, which I can address in a second, that's a lifelong conversation. Mm. And if you want that lifelong conversation to be skillful, there are scales to do. Uh, as a, for instance, you could start in childhood and say, what were your favorite movies? What were your favorite books? What were your favorite places, your favorite sports, all the favorites. And that would be maybe interesting on a surface level. The real reason for asking that question, though, is why were they your favorites? Sometimes people had a uh, fair amount of trauma in their childhood and they don't want to go there. And so you can say, okay, so now what are your favorite books, movies, places, adventures, sports, people who are your heroes now? Just as an example, there, there might be hundreds of those kinds of inquiry questions and exercises you could ask, but again, it's why. When you say, what were the best moments? What do you call best moments in your life? It might be interesting to say that, but then why are they your favorites? So the why is, is the big piece, is what's the why? So if you're in this inquiry and you're doing it consistently and you're achieving a certain level of masterfulness, in that inquiry, meaning I don't, my, my level of understanding about my why, mm -hmm. now because I've been doing consistently over time and I've seen multiple changes in my life happen while I'm in this inquiry, I have a certain level of depth of understanding about that. And that skillful means means that you now are in the conversation with life if this is what life is calling you to, life, you might say that it's a future attractor that has a kind of pull from the future. There's a future that wants to happen. And if you're in the conversation with that future that wants to happen with a solid, with a certain amount of depth, vertical depth about that conversation, you now are ready to be in a conversation with life about how to manifest that. And in my experience, those people that are caught in jobs that they were less than thrilled about, the minute they fully understand they're in that conversation with life, the existential angst drops away. Mm. They get the temporary nature of that. And now we're ready for the conversation of, well, okay, how do I do that? The scales, the same skillful means then applies to how do, you, do I do that? And one of the first places that I approach that from the life mission perspective is action, what I call action vocabulary. When people get to the point of, okay, I know my why, and I have a sense of what that's calling me to do now that might take the nature of maybe a profession, might be a project, and maybe a sense of, in terms of the who, what skills do I need to develop? Most people have about three to five favorite pet strategies for being in action. And I would say, let it, in linguistics would say if you don't have a name for something it doesn't live for you so if your action vocabulary is fairly limited then can we talk about what if instead of three to five favorite action strategies or distinctions around action and being in action and manifestation and all that what if you had two or three hundred so when you try your favorite two or three and they don't seem to be working for you you have maybe another hundred 
that you're ready to experiment and prototype with. While you're still carrying on the conversation of the reinvention of self and the conversation with life about the call of the future, doing the why, what, and who inquiry ongoingly, building your skill there, would I have a sense of how why has evolved over my life and how why might be moving into the future, my personal why and the collective why, and then what possibilities I could look at the what strategies I used to have, the what strategies I might be present to now in terms of occupations or projects and the skills I need to build in terms of the who I need to become. And I've got this expanded action vocabulary. And if you're ready then to move on to how do I do that artfully, beautifully, sacredly, and skillfully, we could have that conversation. But just being in that inquiry I found is a great antidote to existential angst or why I don't want to have to do this job one more day. Thank God it's Friday goes away because every day you're in a consistent action on building the bridge to. And I'm a very practical kind of guy. You know, I was like, this isn't, this isn't woo-woo. This is, you're in this life for a reason. There were certain things packed in your bags in terms of a propensity in the uh, spiral dynamic realm, they call it lines of intelligence. And we've recently discovered that plants have about 23 kinds of intelligence that they employ. So I would find, you know, we, I don't know if we've collectively acknowledged 23 lines of development, but close. And what I would say is that's, while there are many things that are universal about being a human being, and it, that we have, there are certain structures of mind we're called to develop and state development and perspective development and all that. Where the uniqueness comes in, the life mission uniqueness, is which particular lines of development are you called to up-level and develop? You know, we could say that spatial, the spatial intelligence would be for the visual arts, kinesthetic maybe for performance arts, writers might be intra and interpersonal intelligence and linguistic intelligence scientists might be linguistic and mathematical and cognitive and you know i could go on and on but that's where the uniqueness shows up so when you are employing the development of the lines of intelligence consciously that you were meant to develop and you know you're in the process and you know then it's not a what if it's a only it's i know this will happen, it's only a matter of when, you can go off to that job with a pretty sunny disposition and a great attitude because you know that you are stepping into and aligning with the pull of that future you were meant to step into. Mm. And then everything's different. I've had a few of those back in the day when I was a musician and I've had those between band day jobs. I was clear about where I was going in life and even though I wasn't totally thrilled about some of those day jobs. I was kind of unfazed about not being thrilled about that day job because I was clear where I was going and it was only a matter of, of when, not if. Mm -hmm. So Brilliant. skill development, it always comes back to that. Brilliant, I love that. I can't help but not notice that one of the tools that keep reoccurring in what you're talking about is inquiry and mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested in how you develop and support people in developing the capacity to not shut the door when they're in the process of inquiry, because there's a, as you know, in language, uh, as in physics, when we name something, we also kill a lot of potentiality. And um, so 
It's kind of like, how do you, a lot of people have shut the door. This is the way it is. And I'm just stuck here. So how do you work with people to keep that door of inquiry, um, dreaming, uh, imagining, what uh, 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 questioning, questioning, living as Rilke says, living into the question. How do you support people in keeping that open? The, uh, it was Adya Shanti, I guess, who said, the two wings of awakening are inquiry and practice. Mm -hmm. So built into the process is a, is a conversation about awareness, a conversation about what I often call dropped-in awareness, you know, the, the whole non-dual conversation, but at least the conversation about some manner in which we step out of the thought-feeling, 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 conceptual mind as the only way of addressing things so that the encouragement then and the the practice then has a the two wings of inquiry and practice the awareness so that we don't become fixated on the way we've labeled the result of an of a question or an exercise mm -hmm. uh, also the conversation of saying that you over the course of time you may ask several hundred questions and I, I do i maybe have several thousand so they kind of get shuffled but that are all key to this question of life mission including what's the question at the center of your life and what's the question your life is meant to be the answer to but to say that there's no one question that's going to give you that insight it's an emergent principle that it's the non-local power of asking these questions that this question correlated with several hundred other questions create a kind of momentum that results in an emergent understanding that isn't about a particular definition of your why, it's about an emergent knowing about your why. And sometimes we say there's a truth that's not relative and you could know it, but it's difficult to talk about. You know, it's a kind of a Zen thing, I suppose, in that way. So the, conver the ongoing conversation at that first level when you're starting the inquiry is a conversation about that. And not everyone is perhaps so ready for that conversation, but just to say that over time, what we have seen, I have a description of the way we view things that I call the vertical view that's talking about the distinctions where we go from literal view to moral, good, bad, ethical, right, wrong, uh, abstract, rational to a kind of, you know, that we have, we forms tribes, you know, the tribal thing about our rational assessment of things that when it's too restrictive results in a kind of gothic refusal to be diminished. And that's a kind of a turnaround. So anyway, I, I, there's a description of that all the way up to the anagogical, which is the great uplift, reaching down to uplift through an alchemical transformation and those kind of things. What I've noticed is in that middle ground, is that place where we are called to not be so flat, flatland view about our life and see the symbolic, archetypical, metaphorical, iconological levels of things. How that applies to your question is that in the experience of working with people over the years is that people have shared that at first their ability to answer those questions 
I've had someone literally say, I was only able to answer, even answer those questions, get anything when you ask that question about 20% of the time. You asked that question and it was file not found. Later though, coming back to it, you know, this was a group of people that I was working with every month. You know, I was working with a company and people in the company were coming once a month to the conversation. And he, and he said, this was later, he was saying, and later I could answer about 40% of the questions. Mm -hmm. And then it was 60 and then it was 80. And now it's, you answer the question, I've always got something, I can answer that question. And what I notice about that is that built into the questions are a way of asking you to be present to the symbolic, metaphorical, iconological, you know, the, the more vertically higher structure of mind orientations so that it opens up your view. What that also does is, and what I will share with people now is that when I ask this question and it's file not found for you, you, the inclination will be to, I don't have an answer for that, so I'm going to hang out to the next question. I invite you to stay with the question because what's happening in your brain, if you stay with that question, is new connections are being made in your brain. New synapses are, are appearing. New connections between the synapses are appearing. So just stay with the question and you will find that over time that where before you asked that question and nothing happened, mm -hmm. now there's an answer because different parts of the brain hooked up and you're, you're maybe even up-leveling the structure of mind, brain-mind. Yeah. You know, the biocomputer has added some, some wetware, if you will. I love so that. So there, it's, it's an ongoing process, and everyone can do it, and it's built into the process that it, while you're in the inquiry, it actually develops your ability to be in the inquiry. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if they're around anymore, but there was a school called the Ridwan School. You might have heard of them. And it was based on repetitive questions, just like what you're saying. And of course, that's an ancient mystical tradition too, to continue to repeat the question or Zen, who are you? Okay, yeah. who are you? Who are you? And um, I think we close the questions off far too quickly and don't revisit once we have closed those questions. And in your book, I, I think Verity asked three main questions. What do you love? What do you find beautiful? And what do you long for? Let's, let's explore those questions. Maybe you, you can talk about yourself in that way in what do you love? Or I can talk about that. You've been doing that. And I'm wondering over the three or four decades of exploring that you've been doing in this area of have those things evolved and changed? And if so, how? So if you're asking the question, what do you love? I suspect for me, there are things that have changed along the, the way. You know, I love learning and I, I used to love running, but I don't love running anymore mm. because I ran too many miles. <laughs> so those things do change. But what about you? What do you love? Well, it's interesting, one of the scales, you know, going back to Rumi, Rumi's uh, let the beauty you love be what you do. Right. So one of the scales is if the beauty you love is what you do, what would you be doing? Mm. You know, so that's one of the many scales. Uh, what I found really universally, as I'm thinking about it now, as you ask that question, is that what I love hasn't changed at all. Mm what's changed is the vehicle to express it. 
I did used to love, well, maybe I also could agree on the running part because I used to run seven and eight <laughs> miles a day and I don't do that anymore. But loving learning, loving uh, creating content to inspire people and, and I love teaching and I, I did love art and science. I was a, I worked as a scientist for a while and I do have a fine arts degree and I had a design studio and I made my living as an artist and as a scientist. So that integration of the good, the true and the beautiful or art, science and spirit. I've loved the spiritual path. I've had teachers in pretty much all the traditions over my life. So that what I say is that everything that got packed in your bag is, is meant to be used. Mm. So what I the musician part of me, I still teach a, a class on the integration of music uh, in, your, in life. Life, uh, the metaphor of music for being skillful in your life, I teach that about every five years. I teach uh, that third level of life mission where we're saying the manner in which you do your life mission is probably as important as whether you do your life mission, because if you do it poorly or with the wrong attitude, maybe it was okay that you didn't do it. So then we say, okay, the integration of the good, true, and beautiful, or in the integration of art, science, and spirit, that you do your mission artfully, beautifully, sacredly, and skillfully. So then that's a week-long in-person thing when we do it that way, where we spend, where we invest the first three or four days of the week to doing each of the visual and performing arts from the perspective of this art What's the science of this art? And what it would mean to do this art as spiritual practice while everyone is doing every one of those arts from drawing and painting and acting and writing and sculpture and acting and all, every one of the vision and dance, every one of the vision, everyone does all of them as the science and spirit of that art. And then we go to science and say, what's the spirit and art of that science? And then we go to the, science and or the we go to spiritual practice and say what's the art and science of that spiritual practice and then at the end of the week we come back to okay then what's the art science and spirit of medicine and the art science and spirit of healing and relationship and finances and and social practice and you know all the aspects of life and finally at the end we come back to how what's the art, science, and spirit then of your particular life mission work domains. Mm -hmm. So creating all of that and the manner in which I'm doing like all of those things, like my artist self and my scientist self and my musician self and my writer self and my content creator self and all those things, the love of all those things have very consciously been employed to be, so to say that, Maybe I can't do all of them all every, on any week, month, or even year. But over the course of three to five years, I make sure I'm doing, they have a place in the larger arc of a three to five year plan. And they, everything that was packed in my bags gets utilized. So in the sense that what I love has not changed. Very much how I express that, though, has changed consistently. So then the, the skillful means of becoming masterful, have serving a certain level of masterfulness about the embodiment of the why, the what, and the who, and the how, and the timing of the when, is a consciously developed skill that you'd say that uh, Daniel Coyle's talent code of saying, how do you develop a skill? The four major elements of knowing what you're shooting for and knowing when you're off and chunking that down and rinse and repeat, you know, that we just talked about. 
that very that masterfulness is built by bringing your ignition to those four steps. So saying, here's my ignition, here's my why. And I'm going to very consciously develop the, the skill in embodying that and then bringing my love of sharing the how to do that as a process was the evolution of the way of the heart over three decades. And then, and now the more freshly minted Hugh person project which is how that's being brought to collectively scaling up so that it could be collegial. It could be corporate, could be entrepreneurial, could be uh, social practice. So the scaling up of that is I'm now calling the Hugh person project. The what? Uh, the Hugh, Hugh person. person. You know, we, we say human. I say ah, Hugh person. person. I got it. Okay. Yeah. To be gender <laughs> inclusive, the Hugh person project. Mm -hmm. You know that the word Hugh being from the ancient Sanskrit meaning God. Mm -hmm. Hugh means God. Humor meaning more God. Right. So the Hugh person project is that place where the capacity as Hugh people is employed collectively to scale up together to a future that wants to happen. And most particularly at that level, without the figuring, the linear logic and conceptual mind, that the non-dual dropped-in presence, awareness, epiphany mode, zone, however we want to refer to that, is more the norm and less the exception in the manner of scaling it up together. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, the longing part, we didn't say much about that. And I, first of all, there's a, a real global feeling of not belonging, per particularly in the West, a feeling mm -hmm. of not belonging. And Joe Campbell, I think it was, said, be your longing. And you're saying, what do you long for? And yet there's this kind of a deadness in this the power of longing. And I think I have a feeling that that is related to a sense of belonging. We're an alien, alienated species. We have in North America, uh, one in four people has no one they could call in case of an emergency. And most people have at the most two or three friends that they would really call friends. So there's this huge sense of separation and it feels like longing fits in there somewhere. What are your thoughts about that? Well, the first place that, I, that comes up for me as you're saying that is making a distinction about nostalgia and longing. The Sufi, Sufis have, well, some Sufis have a, have, a name, have a way of referring for, to the nostalgia for the future. It's mm -hmm. called ishq. So the ishq longing. Nostalgia for the future. I love that. Yeah, so instead of the nostalgia for what used to be or some idea you have about the good old days, mm -hmm. that there's this other kind of nostalgia, the ishk, that is the longing for what can be, the longing for the future that wants to happen, and perhaps the longing to step into your piece of the future that wants to happen. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of courage and, well, an encouragement to up-level your imaginative faculties that comes with being present to the ishk, the nostalgia for the future. So then your longing, let the beauty you love be what you do, the place your longing in the future that wants to happen and the possibility for you and our collective mm. piece of that. 
so that now you're part of the longing for a future that can happen and the up-leveling of your imaginal faculties places you squarely in a community of, we are all in this together. And speaking of Joseph Campbell, in, we've had many thousands of years of the hero and heroine's journey. And that's helpful. The hero and heroine's journey up-levels our structures of mind. It helps us move through those spiral dynamic structure of mind levels. It helped us move from tribal to concrete literal to rational to plural and integral like that moving up. And second tier structure of mind, unitive, is coming in, is incoming. And Joseph Campbell at the end of his career, before he died, was saying, this is a universal that we've had for thousands of years. It's called the Hero and Heron's Journey, and it's a blueprint for how to become a whole and healthy adult, whole and healthy spiritual adult. Having said that, however, it's taken us as far as it can go, mm -hmm. and it's time for a new myth that is not the hero and heroine's journey. Because in many ways, the hero and heroine's journey is based on a history of thousands of years that is a certain thing. And we are rapidly, exponentially moving out of that construct and blueprint. Mm -hmm. and in his last days, he's saying, there's a, there's a new blueprint. There's a new myth that has to happen. And after, all, after a lifetime in research into myth, he's saying, I don't know what that is. None of us know what that is. We're creating it now. And it just may be that the, uh, the major stopping point we all just hit might be that, that, that pause between the in-breath and the out-breath. We're on the precipice of a new something, you know, waiting to exhale. And whatever it is we're going to co-create right now is perhaps the new myth that he was saying we need, mm. that it has to happen. So then if you bring your ishk to the future that can happen, and you realize that we are all together now creating the new myth, and you're willing to do the work, like when Joseph, Samuel said, Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, that wasn't like a mindless, you know, like have a good time all the time and just do whatever you want. He's saying you need to be willing to take that hero and heroine's journey and go out into the wilderness and do your ashes work and be called to task for the things you haven't looked at, you know, your shadow work and your ashes work and all of those growing up, showing up, cleaning up kind of things we're all called to do. That was a lot of work. That wasn't, that was active participation. That was advanced citizenship in process, right? Mm -hmm. Now the same thing is true. It's, now it's, whatever the new myth is, we all are, are being asked to do that work, still do the ashes work, shadow work, compensatory work, compensatory ego work, all that stuff, wounded child, all the stuff. We're still called to do that. There will be a new blueprint for the manner in which we do that. And the life mission conversation is an intimate part of that. That whatever it is I'm called to do, you're called to do, all of us are called to do, we all came in with that built into the entelechy of our being at the moment of conception. Our piece of what's going to come next, whether you're a child or a teenager or an elder, if you're still alive, you have a piece of what's next. And then the life mission inquiry is how you get present to. And then if you're present to your peace, and you're present to that we're all called to step into the ishk, the 
longing and the nostalgia for what can be, then we can step into that skillfully and courageously. You know, the Viktor Frankl's logos therapy, when he, his question was, having survived the death camps, why did I survive? Why did those who did, did, and those who didn't not survive? And he came to the conclusion that one of the most significant pieces were, was, did you feel like you're surviving and, and sharing what you have was important? If you were in touch with that, you tended to survive. You know, there's certainly a matter of luck there, but you know, as in, in terms of the stamina or the will, that which was the creation of logos therapy, coming back to here we are now. Maybe your job just went away. Maybe your whole profession just went away. Maybe you you are. There's a temptation to fall into fear, disappointment, frustration, um, hopelessness. If you're doing the inquiry, they said courage is commensurate with meaning. To the degree that you're in touch with your meaning, that's the degree to which you bring your courage. So if you're, if you're doing the work to be clear about your meaning and you're connected to the future that wants to happen and you're engaging your imaginative faculty, then you're much more likely to say, as we do our reset and we move into what's next, I do have a piece to contribute to that and that will have me have the courage to reach out. Maybe instead of like, I'm gonna check out the internet as diversion because I'm in a place of hopelessness. I now have a sense of the future that wants to happen. I have a sense of my piece of that and I'm going online to find my community. Hmm. Who's, that we are gonna create, co-create together the next, including not just the next, Here's how we piece together the practicalities of life. But we, there's another project we're all involved in, and that's creating the new blueprint for what it means to be a whole and healthy spiritual adult, advanced citizen. Hmm. So I, I don't know if that, hopefully that answered some of the questions. Uh, well, it made more questions uh, than we could possibly handle in the next 10 minutes or so, or six minutes. I wanted to ask you how you spell ishk. I'm not familiar with that term. I believe it's I-S-H-Q. H-Q, okay. Yeah, ishk. Ishk. Where does that come from? Um, it's Sufi. I've, I've heard uh, Hazrat Nayak Khan okay. talk about it and his son Pir Vilayat Nayak Khan and uh -huh. okay. now currently Pir Zia Nayak Khan. I believe that Llewellyn Von Lee also talked about it. Okay. In, in... I, just, well, I just wanted to track it because it wasn't a term I was familiar with. But I, I did, um, let's see, so many things you brought up I wanted to talk about. I, I had the privilege and the opportunity many years ago to do a course at San Francisco Medical School with Joseph Campbell and Jack Schwartz. And he did allude to exactly what you're saying about that there needs to be a new model. And I've thought about that often, new model. And one of the things for many years that's come up for me is a very simple thing that is rampant, and that is that what's at the heart of suffering? The heart of suffering, for, from my perception, is based on one thing, and basically one thing only, and that's the belief or the lie that we're separate, that we're 
objects in a world of objects from the Newtonian perspective rather than from the quantum perspective of everything is connected and everything affects everything else, that that's really at the heart of the shift you're talking about from that hero or heroine's journey, which is an individual journey, although there are things that happen along the way, to the awakening of our deep interconnection. Part of that is shown in, in the Zen woodcuts where the person goes through and then comes back to teach, but it's still the person is the teacher to teach the masses, not really the sense of, um, of a merged identification with each other. So that was one thing I, I wanted to, to bring up. It's a bunch of other things. I thought it was, you, you can put together, I'm gonna to give you about three things and maybe in the next four or five minutes we can, you can weave them together. One of your characters in the book was named Kairos, which mm. of course is one of the distinct, two distinctions of time in the Greek language between Kronos, the chronological linear time, and Kairos, what I would call the emergent time or the idea whose time is right or when the fruit is is ready to pick or whatever however you want to say that it's a very now phenomena and so that takes me to that the future is in the present always emergent and this whole conversation we've had about finding your mission and your purpose and your and and having vision are all to not, if we're not somehow able to hear the whispers of the emergent future and what our part is in that. So I just threw out five different things. Uh, maybe you can tie them together, sorry. Sure, no problem. Um, starting with that remembering, that's why I call it the caravan of remembering, mm -hmm. that it's not about finding our life mission, it's remembering because it's not something that, it's something that came with you that was built in. And, you know, it's the uh, oak tree that's already present in the acorn. Mm. That entelechy was there at conception. Mm. So it's about remembering that you always already knew that. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Master Nan, uh, the, said to be the current Confucius in China, you know, like if you go into a restaurant, you'll probably see three or four of his books on the shelf somewhere. You know, like the contemporary Confucius in China called it sudden enlightenment. We could call it, I like epiphany in the sense that the word epiphany means that eternity has entered into time, mm. right? So that kairos is that, that you know, when, when Eckhart Tolle was talking about the power of now, he wasn't talking about the clock now. He was talking about the epiphany moment where eternity has entered into time. So it's uh, that conversation you're, you're in the co-creation with life about the future that wants to happen is a conversation that from transrational knowing, because we were pre-rational, then we were rational, and our rational processing where we make distinctions of comparison and contrast that can only be inevitably built on a past because how do you understand how do you understand the word you just used you have to go back to your past and make reference and all that so that that really the world has mostly moved forward from moments of epiphany what our champion rational figures have well 
have in their biographies often testified to long periods of uh, figuratively hitting their head against the wall, trying to figure something out. And then they might be riding their bicycle or in the shower or at the, at the lake house or something, and they have an epiphany because they let go of their figuring for a moment and it dropped in the knowing, transrational knowing brought the solution. So this process of being present that to the eternal now, the epiphany, eternity has entered into the moment, into time in which all of the future and all of the past are simultaneously present. You know, you could say spherical awareness. If you have a bubble that says, there's my present, and then there's five minutes ago and five minutes from now, they're all within that bubble. And, if, and then now you could say, well, five years ago and five years from now is all within this sphere of my current awareness. And, you know, you could keep expanding that, but just say that from epiphany, eureka moment, in the zone, sudden enlightenment, whatever your word is for that flow moment of, it's all right now. So now I actually do have a way of, from a transrational view of being present to the future that wants to happen. And I can be in that conversation with the future that wants to happen. So that um, I have my horizontal and vertical awareness going, that e eternity has entered into time. So the chronos, horizontal world flow, is integrated with a Kairos eternal now moment flow. And I have a sense of that horizontal relationship of the co-creation that is not limited to, you know, my local awareness in, the, in my bodysuit that there are, you know, like the Aspen forest where it seems like there are thousands of trees, but really it's only one tree, right? right? <laughs> it seems like we have seven to eight billion bodysuits running around, but it's really just one awareness with lots of bodysuits running around. So that, and our Kairos awareness helps us get that it is all one. I'm not sure how many of the three questions I addressed, but. Uh, Pretty much covers them all, particularly the last part there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I just uh, wanna thank you, Daniel Goodenough, for a wonderful conversation. And I'm grateful for your work. And again, your book is The Caravan of Remembering a roadmap for experiencing your awaken, the awakening of your life's mission. And just, just lovely to be with you. Thank you for the vertical and horizontal depth that you brought to this conversation. It's really a delight to spend time with you. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. Look forward to another one soon. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.